So good to see you guys all here with us today, braving the roads and the weather, beautiful snow. So thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to um, be gathered. I'm Zach, one of the pastors here. If you're new here, um, we'd love to get to know you. Uh, there's a card in front of your seats that we'd love to hear from you. If you're new, love to pray for you. If there's prayer requests, um, you could fill that out and put it in the box here in front of the sound booth. Um, we are continuing in, our, in our, our series in 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Peter chapter 2. And 1 Peter is like way in the back. So it's right after James and Hebrews. And we're in 1 Peter, starting in chapter 2, verse... We're going to review verse 9 and 10 like we did last week, and then we're going to dive into our text for today. So let's open up to 1 Peter 2, right off the bat here, get to work in the text. Look at verse 9, what we, what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go listen to the podcast, because today really flows from what we talked about last week. So 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now look at it there, verse 9. But you are. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are. Are you with me? See it there? Those are all identi- identity statements. He's saying you, meaning plural. So you, he's writing to a, a church, okay? And if you look back at, at verse 1 and 2, it's a church in Cappadocia, a church in Bithynia, a church in Asia, you know? These are churches that he's writing to, and, and, and it may as well be the church of Madison as well, okay? Because God's word has been inspired for us and carried down through century after century for us to apply it to our lives. So he's saying you, like y'all, the church, are, this is your identity, a chosen race. The church is us together, the vine church or the church in Bithynia or or wherever Jesus is, is Lord. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. You used to be people who knew not mercy, but now you do know mercy. You are people of mercy. So he's drilling home identity. Identity is so important because knowing who you are always leads to how you're going to act. Identity implies action. Identity implies action. Who you are leads to what you will do, okay? So I'm sure a lot of us know people here who are or have served in the armed forces. So if you walk up to maybe a Marine officer and ask him or her, who are you? Well, there could be a lot of answers, but I'm sure one of the answers would be, I am a Marine, okay? That's part of my identity, Um. I'm a trained soldier. I went through boot camp. I, I have some experience, and, and the, the overseers of my training have labeled me with an identity that says, you are a Marine, okay? And so that identity of being a Marine officer leads to certain actions, right? So if the country goes to war, the identity of a Marine is going to lead to participating in defending our country, and that could look a thousand different ways. 
if you have um, bad intentions for this marine officer and you break into his or her house at night, the marine officer is probably going to use the training that they've received to do some certain actions, right? They're going to defend their home. They're, they have that training, okay? They're going to defend their house. Now consider the opposite. Consider the opposite. How odd would it be for a person who was not a Marine but really wanted to be to try to jump into the fighting where there's a war breaking out or like sneak in to the, uh, uh, sneak on some ship or fall in line when, when soldiers are marching? And someone who is a Marine might say to that person, like, what are you doing? Why are you acting this way? You're not a Marine. But then they say, well, I'm trying to prove through my actions that I'm worthy to be a Marine. That doesn't make any sense. Then the response would come, but that's, that's not how this works. You have to receive the identity of Marine first, and then you march in line with us. And then you defend the country with us. But see, right now, you don't know who you are, and you don't know what you're doing, because you've forgotten who you are. You're not a Marine. So become Marine first, and then you have plenty of action to do in light of that identity. Make sense? And that's kind of what Peter is getting at here in 1 Peter chapter 2. The church has to know who she is. That was last week, and that's what we just reviewed. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession, right? This is who you are. And this week, since the church knows who we are, we're going to live a certain way. We're going to live a certain way. And that living a certain way has a very powerful potential impact on an unbelieving world that is looking in to how we live in light of who we say we are. All right? So that leads us to our text for today. Let's turn to verse 11. So keep in mind the identity. Verse 11 and 12 stand on the shoulders of those identity statements. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right? Let's pray together. Father, would you help us? Would you help us? We're weak and our minds are weak and our, 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 sometimes we're slow to believe. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you awaken us now? Would you help me to say what you would have me say? Um, would you have us hear what you would have us hear? Would you give soft hearts to receive and to want to live in light? of what you've so graciously given us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our identity is secure, our identity is set. In light of these verses, now what are we going to do? What, if you look at verse 11, what's the first action word that you see there? What's the verb that kind of jumps off the page in verse 11? Look at it. Go ahead and look at it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to what? To abstain, right? That's the verb, to abstain. That's the action word, okay? Refraining from some things. Okay, so we're going to abstain or refrain from what? What does it say? 
the passions of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. See that in verse 11? So question, what are the passions of the flesh? We should be asking that right now, right? And what the passions of the flesh are is just simply a biblical way of saying the desires that we have inside of us that are contrary to God's revealed will. Um, Those things that, that feel good in the moment but never deliver that never truly satisfy in the long term. It's just another way of saying the sinful desires that we all find in us. Just sin. A desire to do that which is contrary to God. Okay? So, if that's what passions of the flesh are, what do passions of the flesh do? Well, they want to kill you spiritually. See that in verse 11? The passions of the flesh want to kill spiritually. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, it says, which wage war. It's a violent, it's a serious engagement. They want to wage war against our soul. They declared war on our soul. They declared war on spiritual sensitivity. They declared war on our salvation. Okay? This is heavy stuff. This is, this is, this is, this is a serious thing. We'll come back to this in a second. Let me ask this, though. So if these sinful passions are waging war against our joy in God and we're supposed to abstain, here's another great question. How do we abstain? How do we go about abstaining? Okay? And here's a good exercise in just letting the Bible interpret the Bible and letting an author interpret himself. And so oftentimes, as we're seeking to understand one verse, Oftentimes, the answer to that verse is going to be found in another part of what the author has already written, okay? So that's another reason why it's good to read a whole letter together, okay? So we're going to let the context help us understand here, verse 11. So jump back just a few paragraphs to chapter 1, verse 13, okay? And what we're going to see is a similar language of passions, okay? And that's going to help us understand verse 11 of chapter 2. So look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to, here we go, the passions. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former Ignorance, okay? So I want us to see the connection here between 13 and 14. See the connection? What are we supposed to do in 13? We're supposed to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to focus our mind on on Jesus and his reality and that he's going to one day return and make all things right. So I'm just, I'm going to be consumed with who Jesus is and what he's doing And then in light of that knowledge, in light of that orientation, in light of that fixation, what am I going to do? Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So how do we abstain from the passions of the flesh? Those two verses kind of go together. One pastor says it like this, that I read this week. We abstain from the passions of the flesh by replacing them with new passions for God. We abstain from passions of the flesh by replacing them with new passions 
for God. It's through setting our minds on something else. It's through a greater passion. That's why 13 says, man, set your hope fully on this. Set your orientation, set your hope, set your focus on what? On Jesus and what he's going to do. What he is doing, what he's going to do. Okay? And so that's going to help me not be conformed to this former way of life of passions that, that wreaked havoc on my soul and anesthetized my spiritual sensitivity, right? So we kill and wage war on the passions of the flesh through an all-consuming, far greater passion, a passion for God, a longing for God, a desire for God, an obsession with God. That's 1 Peter 1.13, same language of passions that we find in 2.11. So here's the deal that's really important. It's not just a matter of stopping certain behaviors. It's an all-new affection that takes up so much space in your heart and mind that there's no space left over for sin, okay? It's kind of like having a, a big cardboard box full of sin, and I, I got to remove this sin. Okay, so I'm going to pull the sin out. Do we just leave the box empty? No, 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 no. It's way easier for that sin to climb back in there if it's just empty. No, we remove the sin out of the box, and then we fill it with something better. We fill that space so that nothing else can get in there with something better, Okay? So let's summarize where we've been thus far. I know this is kind of one logical connection to the other, but just hang with me. This is really important. So, so, so the text 2.11 tells us we are to abstain, and based on 1 Peter 1, 13 and 14, abstaining looks like setting our minds on Jesus, setting our, 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 our affections and our minds and our orientation this hope that we have in Christ. So again, the question in the war is not, what do I need to stop doing? Or what can I get away with? Those are horrible questions, biblically speaking. The question that allows us to abstain and win is this. Verse 13 of chapter 1. What is going to help stir me up? What's going to help stir up my hope in Jesus? What's going to help me remember who I am? What's going to help me have a greater orientation towards God and his goodness? What's going to help me stir up love for God and the hope that I have in him? All right, so let's apply this. This, this abstaining. What's that supposed to look like if it's supposed to be a replacing of sin with greater affections for God? Let's think about this in terms of maybe just our media consumption, okay? Most of us in this room consume a lot of media, whether it's um, social media, whether it's just TV. Um, let's think about this in reference to maybe shows that we watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime or just on TV or HBO or whatever. How should I, based on this, this text and this flow of thought, how should I know if I should abstain from watching something on Netflix, if that's your medium of choice? So simply ask yourself this based on verse 13 of chapter 1. Does this show in any way help me stir up the deep hope that I have in Christ? Does this show that I'm about to watch or am watching, does it in any way help me have a passion for Jesus? Okay? Now, the answer to that could be nuanced. It could be complex. um, But at least let's do the work of asking the question because that's what seems to be implied here and what Peter's writing to the church, what he's writing to us. 
does this help me love God anymore? Watching this. In any way whatsoever, does it, does it have any redeeming qualities? Does it remind me of, of, of the justice of God? Does it remind me of the love of God? Um, do I find that maybe it just stirs me up in my flesh to, to sin somehow? And maybe it's not just like sin. May, well, maybe it's um, like blatant sin that you would normally think of, but maybe it's just laziness that you're not thinking of. Maybe it's just triviality. Maybe it's like, man, there's two hours there that I can't have back. You know, um, maybe it's just banality or boredom or just wasting time. Um, man, for me, like oftentimes I've started maybe a series on Netflix. That's our medium of choice. And I've just had to turn it off because, man, for me, like watching gratuitous things, like that's one of the things, like, is this just gratuitous with sexuality or violence? I mean, just kind of a pointlessness, Right. Just to kind of titillate, that's what, the, that's, that's what it's there for, to, to, to draw you in. Watching gratuitous things on Netflix doesn't help me love God and have a passion for the hope that I have in Christ. Now, that's a discernment issue. You're going to have to soak in God's word and gain a biblical filter through soaking in God's word, and then you're going to have to think about it. Because there's not necessarily sometimes a clear right and wrong. You're going to have to ask yourself, based on a sensitivity from the Holy Spirit, from God's Word, what is helping me here? Is this truly helpful? Does this help me love God? Not what can I get away with, horrible question, but is this stirring me up to love God in any way? Watching gratuitous stuff on Netflix doesn't help me love God and have a passion for the hope that I have in Christ. But... Man, showing up on a, on a snowy day, that does help stir me up, right? Going to city group, that does stir me up. Going to prayer meeting, maybe like tonight at 6 p.m., that does. Reading my Bible does. Praying with my wife does. Experiencing God in nature does. Listening to the burdens of another person in the church or, or someone in my neighborhood um, and praying for them, that, that stirs me up. Practicing repentance and forgiveness, that, that stirs me up for the hope that I have in Christ. Listening to just beautiful music um, does. Writing, writing a note of encouragement to somebody um, or, or sending him an email or a text, man, that, that, that really stirs me up. See the difference? And, and it might not be just those thing that, things that you normally think of as spiritual, even though they are spiritual. I mean, it's, it's not like, um, well, if I can't watch Netflix and there's no prayer meeting to go to, well, then what do I do? I guess I'll just be bored. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, Yes, we should pursue those things that you would probably find as obvious. Like, yeah, let's soak in God's word. Let, let's, let's pray together. Let's, let's bear one another's burdens. Like, yes, absolutely. But maybe also things that aren't as obvious. Maybe it's not shutting off Netflix as much as, like, just finding a better show. Like, you all need to watch Planet Earth on Netflix if you haven't seen it. I'm, I'm straight serious. That will stir your heart to worship. The amazing creativity of our God it presented in a way that is beautifully done, artistically done. They worked hard. That show has such redeeming qualities. If you watch that and not worship God, something's wrong. All right? So, so find a better show and think about how you can glorify God in that. Like you can glorify God watching, watching football this afternoon. Right? You can look at it and go, God, look at these amazing 
human beings that you've created that can do these amazing athletic feats, God, you're great. Like, you can worship God and be stirred up to love God even as you watch football. You with me? Maybe you just need to go outside today and just look at the beauty of what God has made. Just go for a walk. It's not that cold. You know? And that will help you stir up affections for God. That will help you stir up and remember, man, God is the creator. Jesus said he made all of this, Hebrews chapter 1. He's sustaining everything, even the snow and the cold. He's sustaining it all, and he's given it to us to enjoy. So bundle up, go outside, and enjoy it. Right? We abstain from passions of the flesh. That's the call here in our verse in 2.11. Look at it again. We're called to abstain in light of who we are from passions of the flesh. And we abstain from passions of the flesh by replacing them with new passions for God. So how are you going to get a passion for God? I abstain by not just committing to stop doing certain things, but by pursuing things that will help me stir up love for God. Okay? Enough said there. Let me give you one more comment um, on, on verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. What does it say? It says we're to abstain, but it also says we're in a war. And this language is not coincidental. This language is intentional. We're not at peacetime. We're in a war. These passions of the flesh are at war in us. So when you're in a war, what, what does that imply? That implies a level of seriousness. That implies a level of sobriety. That implies a level of sacrifice. So since this language is intentional, we need to take it seriously, right? We're in a war. Talk to your grandparents or your great-grandparents about what it was like to be alive during World War II. There's not a ton of people alive, but if they, my grandma was alive. Um, some of your great-grandparents are still alive. Just ask them. There was a level of seriousness, sobriety, and sacrifice that took place because there was a war happening there was a lot at stake. Like Hitler had to be defeated, and that had implications. The war brought implications for our lives. It wasn't peacetime. It was wartime. And that's what Peter is saying here. We've got to be alert. We've got to be focused. We've got to be conscious of a very real danger that can strike at any time. And he's saying, if you feed the flesh over and over again, there's going to be casualties. If you engage with the enemy over and over again and underestimate the enemy's willingness to kill you, what's going to happen? The enemy will kill you. See, we're in a war, and the war resides in us. It's the war between the sinful nature and the Spirit of God that lives in Christians. And so since we're in a war, how much more should we be serious about stirring up chapter 1, verse 13, stirring up those things that help us love God and not feeding the flesh with those things that detract from our love for God. So we don't feed the flesh. We don't sit down for coffee with the enemy that wants to kill us. We set our minds on those things that help stir us to hope that we have in God, in Jesus, the king of the universe. His name is Jesus. So since we are the church, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Since we as the church are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood set apart as holy unto God, his treasured possession, since all that is magnificently and beautifully true, we're called 
to, since our identity implies action, the identity is secure, so the action is abstain. We're called to abstain. We're called to look, we're called to look different. And as we abstain, that's going to have an impact on the world around us, okay? That's going to have an impact on the world around us. So let's look at verse 12, and we'll be done. So, beloved, uh, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think one of the best ways to think about verse 12 is this. I think it's fully supported by this verse. If we're to sum up the life of the church, and that's what Peter's doing here. He's writing to a group of believers, a family of believers, the church, scattered all over um, ancient uh, modern-day Turkey. If we are to summarize what he's getting at here in verse 12, I, I, I think it's this, and I think this is how we should think about church in Madison as well. The Vine Church is called to be a confusing community. The Vine Church is called to be a confusing community, okay? And this is the demonstration part of our vision statement where we always talk about seeking to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration. Last week, I talked about it. Declaration and what? Demonstration. This is the demonstration part, okay? We're supposed to abstain from the sin within us that wants to kill us, but we're also we're supposed to live our lives as the church together in, what does it say? In ways that are honorable. So I think logically, abstaining from sinful passions will lead to honorable or beautiful lives lived. Why should this be, why should we live this way? Because there's such a strong and confusing, strong evangelistic impact here. Look at it again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They're going to see something. You're abstaining, and it's going to look like good deeds probably. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? Well, there's a causal relationship here. See it? It's, it hinges on the, the two words, so that. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why, why should I, Peter? Well, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, and on he goes. The world looks at Christians and slanders them. Christians are crazy. They're evil. They've got bad, they, they make bad decisions. They're crazy. They're, they're insane. People have said that about Christians for two millennia now. And in our culture, I think kind of the, the locus of that in our day that we see this is in reference to Christians and sexual ethics, okay? Uh, a Christian sexual ethic that has been the case for 2,000 years and hasn't been debated. Um, the, the world now looks at that in a variety of different ways and says, that's crazy. And in fact, it's immoral, the Christian view on, on sex between one man and one woman in marriage only. Um, that's like, that's so restrictive. That's so limiting. 
And that's really, really confusing. And it's not just sexual ethics. It's lots of other things that are going, like, why do you do it that way? Like, what's up with you people? And oftentimes, as a result, you can see it in, in the media, um, Christians are spoken of as evil in light of being just weird, right? That's what the assumption is here in 1 Peter 2.12. They speak evil against Christians. But here's the deal. They also see something. They see something. They might think the church is crazy, but they can't deny they better not be able to deny, that's probably how I should say it, the way that we live and that it's beautiful. They have to admit that it's beautiful, compelling. See, see the, the culture might, might slander, say we're evil and immoral in light of believing what the Bible teaches about sexual ethics. But if we're truly living out what Peter commends, then they won't be able to deny that what we're doing is beautiful. Now, how does this hit the ground running at the vine? This hits the ground running at the vine through what we do in our city groups. This is one of the reasons why we haven't given up on having a serve the city in our city groups. That's programmed in, it's intentional, it's structured. Because we can't just be talk. We also have to be walk. Both, always. We're talking, declaring people, and we're walking, we're demonstrating people. Always together, never separated, never divorced from one another, always together. And one of the best ways to have our walk connect with our talk is we have to live lives of good deeds. So when, as city groups, we're called to connect with the marginalized, let's say it's the marginalized, forgotten senior citizens at a nursing home that would just love to play cards with someone because they're so lonely. Almost everyone in Madison would, would agree that that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing, right? When we seek to support a crisis pregnancy center that wants to empower single moms, almost everyone in Madison would agree that that's a good thing, right? When we seek to help international students in Madison kind of navigate a new life, a new culture, almost everyone in Madison would agree that's a good thing. When we, when we seek to serve Badger Rock Middle School that has lots of needs, almost everyone in Madison would say, yeah, support the public schools. That's great. And and like in our church planting efforts in Madison, but also in North Africa, when when I share with my neighbors that, man, I just got back from North Africa, and and there's a a clinic there that helps kids with cerebral palsy that are often just kind of shuffled aside because Islam says that those people are just kind of cursed. And so oftentimes they don't receive much much good, good medical care, and we've got this clinic that's led by Christians where we do physical therapy. Most of my neighbors, when I tell them that, are like, wow, that's really cool. So people may hate us for our sexual ethics, but then look at these other areas and go, but I can't deny that these other things they're doing are beautiful. And that's confusing to me. That's why I say the church has to be a confusing community. Man, I'll just, I'll just tell you one other one. Um, there's a, uh, a widow, a new widow in our neighborhood, and her name is Ellen, and she's a, exactly the same age as my mom, and my mom also is a, a new widow, and 
So my heart just kind of breaks for Ellen because I can climb into that headspace knowing like what my mom is going through. She's going through the same thing. And so, man, we probably haven't done as good a job as we, as we should as a family. But you know, we just felt one day last fall like we just need to rake Ellen's yard and clean out her gutters, whatever she needs. And so um, my family and then, um, and then one other family from our city group came, and we just, it was, it was really nothing. It was like 90 minutes. And we all gathered together and raked her yard, cleaned out the gutters, cleaned off the roof. And not soon after, I mean, she was so thankful, so thankful. And I just got to share with her a little bit. You know, we love people because we're Christians. And, and just, I was just a Christian in public with her. Um, she didn't, like, repent and believe or anything. But, you know, it was just like she was very appreciative. And I just told her that we're Christians. This is why we do this. Jesus has loved us, so we love others. Simple as that. And a few weeks later, I heard unsolicited from two separate neighbors that they had heard about what we did. Like, man, the way that you served, Ellen, that was so beautiful. Um, that was from one neighbor who I knew. Another neighbor who I didn't even know just came up to the house because I had some stuff that I was giving away on the curb, and they stopped and rang the doorbell. I'd never talked to these people before. And uh, they're like, hey, can we have that stuff on the curb? I'm like, yeah, have at it. And, and they're like, yeah, we heard about what you did for Ellen. It's like, I haven't even talked to you before, you know? And I'm just like, wow, people are noticing good deeds. And that's really good. That's really good. That's no praise us. Um, it was a really simple thing. It was kind of a no-brainer, very little effort. But maybe even just a little effort, just like dipping your, 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 your toe in, in, in the water. And, man, you never know how the Holy Spirit's going to just shove you in the deep end, you know? And, and, man, it's like, I didn't see that one coming. We're just trying to be faithful, you know? And, so, and here's the whole point from, from this verse. Look at verse 12 again with me. The whole point here is this, that some people, it's not going to probably be everybody, but some people, even though they slander, see that, speak against you as evildoers, they're going to recognize the beauty of Jesus through the lives we live. And when God visits them, see that there on the day of visitation? And what that means is just someone coming to them and sharing the gospel with them. That's another kind of biblical way of saying uh, an appearing of God into someone's life through the spoken word of the gospel. Okay, I'm not going to take time to untangle all that, but that's just what that means in other places in the Bible. So when they see our lives and go, this is confusing, someone shares the gospel with them and goes, wow, that is beautiful, some of them will repent and believe. And then what? Give glory, glorify, see it there? Glorify God on the day when they hear the gospel. This is how our lives of good deeds are powerfully evangelistic. This is how our, our lives as the church live together in city groups on Sunday morning um, as a confusing community is going to produce something extremely beautiful in the city of Madison, in North Africa, in Ecuador, and anywhere else where people gather together and name Jesus as Lord. All right? So, so we abstain from the passions of the flesh through replacing passion for sin with those things that help us stir up love for God. And as we do this, this is going to lead to us living lives a certain way that unbelievers can look at and go, man, I'm confused by this, but I want to know more because I can't deny that so much of how they live is truly beautiful. And right there is a perfect opportunity to share the hope that you have. And many, as a result, are going to turn and believe. Let's pray. Father, may this be true of us this morning. We say it every week. I say it again this week. We believe. Help our unbelief 
Apart from you, we can do nothing. So may this text come alive by the power of your spirit in our, in our church. Would, would, you, would you be glorified, God, to do so? Lord, we long for that satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen.